Well, we're in the book of Micah, and Micah is a Old Testament prophet who did his ministry 800 years before Christ. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea, and Micah's theme is that God is bringing, going to bring judgment to the northern kingdom, Samaria or Israel, and he's warning them, and he's pleading with the southern kingdom to walk in the way of the Lord. So the theme is God scatters, but he will one day gather under the shepherding grace of the Messiah King, whose name is Jesus. Now, as we begin, I was talking to someone between the worship services. There are, there are a number, sometimes you meet people who say they're an American original. They're just kind of out there. So this guy who was an American original, his name is Bob, came up to me and he said, I don't know what was wrong with me today. I could not stay awake in your sermon. So that's not very encouraging for you guys to hear that. So uh, hopefully you can stay awake and profit from this. <laughs> I would never admit that. That's why you gotta admire or feel sorry for somebody that does that anyway. So Micah, Micah, is, his, his, his statement is this. Because of your idolatry and your disobedience, you have abused people. And because of your idolatry and your abuse of people, God will judge you. And so he says in chapter 1 and verse 6, regarding the judgment that is to come, uh, he says, Therefore I will make Samaria, or Israel, the northern kingdom, a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. In other words, I'm, it's bad. And he says, this is happening because of your idolatry. He says, verse 7, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. Now, there, there's idols. The idols will be beaten to pieces. The idol is nothing but a man-made stone, man-made gold, you know, statue. And then he talks about how they abuse people. He says in chapter 2, he says, Woe to those who, who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. In other words, they, they, they do this evil because they can. They have the power to do it. They covet fields, and they seize them. They covet houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, verse 3, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against this family. I am devising disaster. Strong word. Devising disaster. Chapter 2. Verse 8, what have they done? Three things. It says, number one, people are passing by without any intent to do anything wrong to you, and you devise harm against, against them. You, you strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly. Secondly, you abuse widows. He says, the, the women of my people you will drive out from their delightful house. He says, the women have delightful houses. These widows, and you seize their houses. And he says, you, you seize the inheritance of the orphans. Verse 3, from, from the young children and or you take away my splendor forever. Therefore, judgment is coming. And this is what, this is Micah's response. He says in chapter one, verse eight, he says, for this, I lament and wail. He says, my heart is broken. 
I will go about stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals who just howl. And then later he says in chapter one, verse 16, it says, make yourselves bald, which is a sign of complete disdain of spirit and grief. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. It is a horrid thing to see the God of mercy hide his face from us. So we're in the midst of a historical situation just like Micah's. And many of us find ourselves in the midst of a situation where there is some confusion and chaos. COVID, general election, economic issues. And we need to stay the course. So I'm gonna give you a passage that, that, that I think helps us understand how to stay the course. When we say, I say stay the course, it's like you're sailing and there's, you're just a crew on the ship and the skipper gives you the till and he says, okay, if you, there's a harbor light in front of us, we don't have instruments, it's an old boat, so you, you steer straight for the harbor lighthouse and if you do, you will escape the rocky shoals and the wreckage that will destroy our boat and potentially forfeit our lives. And so you, you've got to keep your eye on a distant reality to give you steadfastness. That's what it means to stay the course. And I'm going to give you a passage this morning in Micah 6 that helps us stay the course. And the issue is remember the goodness and the mercy of God. Regarding staying the course, uh, the year after the war, Winston Churchill was being interviewed, 1946, and Churchill said this, America is a great and strong country, like a workhorse pulling the rest of the world out of despond and despair. But will it stay the course? Will it continue strong? And I say to the church today, to us, will we stay the course. There are some stay the course passages throughout the scripture. One of them is well known. It's called the Great Commission. What do you do? Stay the course. Well, you realize this. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18 and following. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that you've been taught, and I am with you until the end of time. Stay the course. Go to the nations. Stay the course. Preach the gospel. First Timothy 6, there's a stay the course passage. Paul is writing late in his ministry to a young preacher named Timothy, and he says this in chapter 6, verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things, the empty pursuit of wealth, Given your life to only what you can see. You flee these things and you pursue righteousness and, and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So, so he says, you stay the course, Timothy. You, 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 you flee this and you go hard after, you know, Righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness. And you fight the good fight of faith. So, so we need to stay 
the course. So we're going to be in Micah 6 regarding staying the course this weekend, next week. Today, I'm going to read a few verses out of Micah 6. I'm going to start in verse 3. The Lord has just said, verse 2, I have an indictment to bring against the people of Israel. And he starts off with this plaintive cry. It's a beautiful cry. Oh, my people, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So in this passage, I believe, stay in the course, the huge cry, the huge cry is, remember the great things God has done, and remember God does great things. I'm going to mention three things in this passage. First of all, it says, remember that God is the God who tenderly initiates um, his work in your life. He says, how have I wearied you? He says, God says, I've been your father. In Exodus 19, he says, I've carried you, children of Israel, out of Egypt as if you were on eagles' wings. He says in Isaiah 64, regarding the character of the Lord God, who is the fountain of life, he says, he says, he says verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear or seen with eye a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Matthew 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. So, so God steps back and says, how, how have I wearied you? How have I dismayed you? How have I let you down? I've carried you. I've loved you. I've surrounded you. I've protected you. And yet, you've forsaken me. As Jeremiah says, the fountain of living waters. How, how have I wearied you? And I think the question we have to ask ourselves, do we understand the glory and the goodness and the mercy and the grandeur of God and His triune glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do we see the goodness of the Lord? Do we see His tender care for us? Are we tasting the goodness of the Lord? First Peter 2, do these things because you've tasted the goodness of the Lord. So we have to remember and so he goes through these remembrances. And number one is, remember that I am the God who initiates. And he says three things. Number one, I brought you up out of Egypt, children of Israel. He says, I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And thirdly, I gave you leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. One gave you the law of God where you could walk. One began the priesthood that represents man before God, and one was the sister of the two brothers. It says, I initiated these things. I think about us. God has tenderly watched over us. He brought them up out of Egypt. But not only has he tenderly watched over them, he says, I redeemed you from slavery. I, I bought you back from slavery. I worked in your heart. I, I, I redeemed you. And how did he redeem them? Well, on the first day of atonement, 
The children of Israel sacrificed a lamb and they took the blood and they put the blood on the top of the door frame and the sides of the door frame and the angel of death passed them by. They were spared because of the blood of the lamb. And every year since then, on the day of atonement, their sins were covered from year to year to year by the blood of the lamb. And when Jesus came, he is called the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And once and for all, he fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system by his death upon the cross. So he has redeemed us. And I would just say to us, if we're to stay the course, we must remember that we've been redeemed by the work of Christ. We must celebrate it. We had a, a baptism here. And with so many of these wonderful students and such as you in the early service, we had a lot of children. And, and, and I, I, just, I would just say to you, remember your salvation. Ephesians 2 says this, when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, God made you alive in Jesus Christ. By his mercy, he made you alive in Christ. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And, and, and many of us cannot tell necessarily the day we were saved or maybe even the general time because we were raised in believing homes and we heard the gospel, we trusted the gospel. But, but remembered key turning points in your life where God had mercy upon your soul. And celebrate your salvation. Celebrate the redemption that's found in Christ. Do not forget it. Celebrate it. Be glad in it. I have really enjoyed the last few years, especially we've had a, 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 what we call a ministry to people who've adopted children. And we have many children that have been adopted in our church. And a few years ago, I heard this term for the very first time. It's a gotcha day. Gotcha day. A gotcha day is the day when a child was legally and without equivocation, adopted by the family. It's called gotcha day. So they don't only have a birthday, they have a gotcha day. And I thought, you know, my salvation, your salvation is a gotcha day. It's when God in tender mercy said, you're mine. It's when you saw the glory of the cross and God saved you. Celebrate your regeneration, your being born in the Lord, gotcha day. Don't forget the tender mercies of the Lord. Don't forget the key decision-making terms that happened in your life. And then he says this. He says, he says I, I gave you leaders. I gave you leaders in Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Moses gave us the law. Listen to what the psalmist says about the law. The law gives you a place to stand. I mean, we're believers in Jesus, and we, we have the Scripture. We have a place to stand. We live in a culture that, 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 is, that is, is here, and it's there, and it's here, and it's there, and it's moving, and it's back, and, it's this, and it goes up, and it's down. And, and, and we just say, no, the, the Scripture says, and we stand here. Remember that. And this is what the, the Scripture says in Psalm 119. Listen to verse 43. And I, and, and, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. The psalmist says, you know, says I walk in a broad place, a broad place where I can plant my feet, because I have your precepts. And he says, you know, 
God initiated giving us his word through Moses and he gave us the priest Aaron and the reality of the priestly work is fulfilled in the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the ultimate high priest. So, so as I think about this, God initiates, he goes before us and he surrounds us. One of my favorite verses is in John chapter 10, that's what it says. Jesus says, when he has brought out his, all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. He goes before us. He calls us. He surrounds us. Or Psalm 139 talks about the surrounding mercies of the Lord and talks about where, where can I go to flee from his spirit? He says, I, I can't listen. Verse seven, where shall I go from your spirit? Or, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say the darkness shall cover me and, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The psalmist says, I, he says this with great joy. I can't, I can't get away from his glorious presence. I, I, I can't flee from it. It's there. If I go to the heights, he's there. If I go to the depths, he's there. If I say the night will cover me, that doesn't cover me. It's, the night is like light in the presence of God. He goes before me and he surrounds me. God initiates. God initiated his mercy by drawing us unto himself. God initiates, he covers us. He takes care of us. And the second thing Micah says, this is a very unlikely story, but Micah says it. He says, and remember, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. He said, well, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you the story. But the, 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 the bottom line is this. God uses unlikely people and unlikely circumstances to bless us. And God turns curses into blessings. That's what he's saying here. Remember, God uses unlikely people, unlikely places to bless us, and he turns curses into blessings. Here's the story. The children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. They're camped. They're probably, we think, maybe two million men, lots of people. And there's a guy named Balak, and he's the king of Moab, and they hate the children of Israel. And he calls a confederation of other kings, and he says, we've got to fight these people. And they say, but we can't, we can't stand it. There's just too many of them. And somebody says, well, I know a guy. He's kind of a witch doctor, shaman guy named Balaam. And the word on the street is that whoever Balaam curses is cursed, and whoever Balaam blesses is blessed. And so Balak says, you know, I'll try anything. And so he sends a deputation of leaders with a lot of money to Balaam. And he says, can you please come and curse the children of Israel? And, and, and Balaam says, well, let me check with God. And so he says, I'm going to check with the God of Israel. And the Lord says to him, he says, you, you don't, don't, don't curse them. And he comes back out and says, I, I, I can't do it. I, the God of, the, of Israel says, don't do it. And, and so they go back and Balak sends a bigger group of people with a whole lot more money. And so Balaam says, I'll go ask God. And the God, Jehovah, says, okay, you can go, but only say what I want you to say. And so 
Balaam says, I'll go with you. He took the money, put it in a bank account, took off. Well, they, they get to the king of Moab, and there's Balak, and, and then Balak says, welcome. And he says, I've arranged seven sacrificial mounds. We've slaughtered all types of animals and put them on these sacrificial mounds. Now, we need you to curse the children of Israel. And Balaam says, I'll go see what the God of Israel says. So he goes, and God says, don't, don't curse them, bless them. And so Balaam comes out, and he says, I bless the children of Israel. Be prosperous. Be protected. And Balaam goes, wait a minute. I paid you a ton of money to curse them. He said, I told you I can only say what the Lord God Jehovah tells me to say. He said, okay, let's try it somewhere else. And so they go to another mountain. And they make seven mounds again. And they kill all these animals. They put the animal parts on the mounds. And all the, all the princes and the leaders are standing there. They're, they're, they're regalia, waiting for this fire to come out of heaven to shatter the children of Israel. And so Balaam goes back. To hear what the Lord says. The Lord says, bless them. And so he comes out and Balaam says in Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or in a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Thus says the Lord, I bless the children of Israel. And Balaam goes, wait a minute. I, I, I paid you to curse them. He says, I told you, I don't want to say what God tells me to say. And so Balaam, not real smart. He said, let's do it again. They go to a higher mountain, Pisgah. They get a better view of all the people. And once again, seven mounds, seven sacrifices, all the leaders dressed in their regalia. Balaam comes out of meeting with the Lord and he says, thus says the Lord, I bless the people of Israel. And Balaam gives up. Balaam was a witch doctor, shaman, syncretistic witch doctor. And, and God uses, listen, God uses unusual people and unusual circumstances to bless his people. God turns curses into blessings. Now, there's some young people here. We just baptized a bunch of young people. Pull aside some of these gray-headed people walk in the hallways and ask them, how has God used unusual circumstances to bless you. That's what he says here in this passage. He says, you must remember that God is so glorious and so good, and he is the king that he uses unusual circumstances to bless, like Balak and Balaam. I think of in the book of Genesis, quick story, a man named Joseph. Joseph had 10 older brothers. These brothers were born from, to by one man, four different women. There was great rivalry among them, and Joseph was his father's favorite. And Joseph probably was kind of an arrogant young man, and his brothers didn't like him. And so one day, the dad was far away, and they were out in the middle of nowhere, and they seized Joseph, and they threw him in a pit. And some of them wanted to just kill him and get him out of the way. And one guy said, no, let's sell him into slavery. And so they sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph went to a faraway country called Egypt. And they said, we'll never see him again. They went home and told 
the dad, the patriarch, Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Well, there's an unfolding situation. Joseph is in prison for seven years, but he is a man of integrity and he fears God and he walks with God and God blesses him and he runs from open sin and God blesses him. And there's a king that has, named Pharaoh, has all these wild dreams and no one can interpret them. And somebody says, well, there's, there's this one guy that seems to be able to do that stuff. And he brings Joseph in. Joseph interprets the dream, tells him what's going to happen regarding famine. And the king was so blown away by Joseph. This young man who was sold into slavery says, I'm going to make you the number two man in the nation. You're going to be vice president, secretary of defense, chief of staff, and secretary of state in one person. Boom. And so Joseph saves Egypt from famine by storing grain. And during the height of the famine, his brother's here in a faraway country. There's food in Egypt. And so they go and Joseph recognizes him. They don't recognize, they don't recognize Joseph. They bring their dad in. They're reunited. There's a sense of reconciliation. They think, but this is a culture of vengeance. And so the brothers tread very lightly as long as daddy is alive. But then one day, the, the patriarch dies. And so the brothers get together, the 10 brothers, and they say to one another, now is our day of reckoning because Joseph wouldn't hurt us while dad was alive, but now dad is dead and Joseph will come and get us. And they come to Joseph and they say, please have mercy upon us. And this is what Joseph says. It's one of the most beautiful statements in the Old Testament. It says this. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Joseph said, I don't, I don't exercise judgment. I'm, I'm not in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And they couldn't believe it. But Joseph said, listen, I serve a great God who turns curses into blessings. And I trust him. And the, many of us are going, I'm, well, I don't see it right now. But, but, but you, that's where the life of faith comes in. You trust a heavenly father who watches over us. Thirdly, we serve a God who parts and dries up the Jordan rivers and the Red Seas. Listen to this. And what happened? Third, what happened? From Shittim to Gilgal, that they may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And what that means, Shittim was the last place the children of Israel camped before the Jordan River parted and they walked over into dry land. Gilgal was the first place they camped on the other side of the Jordan River in the promised land. And, and God is saying, listen to me. He says, I am the God who pushes back seas and guides my people and watches over them. And so, so this is what happened. They, they're at Gilgal. They consecrate themselves. They go through a difficult period. And then God says, now the Ark of the Covenant that represents my presence is going to go before you. And when the feet of the priest hit the Jordan River, the Jordan River will stand back. The, 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 the muddy bed of the river will become like, like, like pavement. And, and you'll walk over. And as you walk over, he says, I want you to get 12 stones from the river and come over. And I want you to make a memorial to uh, remember this great day. And it's in Joshua 
chapter 4. Listen. And he said to the people of Israel, after they made this monument to the Lord, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord Jehovah, your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You make this memorial. And so in the years to come, when your children say, what? What do those stones mean? You say, it means that God works supernaturally in the lives of his people. Now, let me say this. Think about where, where, where we are. Remember that is your God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've talked to two couples this week, or one last week, one this week, and they both have said, well, one of the two, in both cases, uh, our marriage is over. This COVID thing with the unceasing familiarity, this unceasing has just exacerbated all of our problems and we, it's, it's over, it's over. And uh, you know what? It's not over. We serve a God who parts the Jordan River. So what, what you do is you begin this first step. You call an elder or a pastor. And you say, we want to come in and talk. And we want to pray in the name of Jesus under the authority of the Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit that God would save our marriage. And you say Jesus' name ten times in that prayer. Jesus, I pray you'll do this. You have a child that's breaking your heart. And you, you want to throw in the towel. You pray in the name of Jesus that God will sustain you, give you the energy, give you the forgiveness, take away the bitterness that is so endemic to your heart in certain situations, to let you love and care. You, there are a hundred applications. Listen, I don't know what you're facing. God parts Jordan rivers. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is alive by his spirit in the midst of his people. So, so we need to remember. We need to remember. We need to remember that God has worked in history. It, it breaks my heart that more people don't think about history. I don't have to be a history nerd or anything, but just to think about the things God has done. So you need to, to, to think today, write down three or four times in your life where you met God and God shaped your character and changed your heart. I mean, just think about it. God still parts Jordan rivers. God uses unlikely people and situations to bring about his will. He turns curses into blessings, and God initiates it all. And it gives me hope. We used to sing a hymn called Armor Christian Soldiers, and one stanza goes like this. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. Men and women have walk the same path we're walking. In fact, one guy that I love says, we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. 
Stay the course by remembering the character of God, by remembering his goodness. In salvation history, in your life, remember it, celebrate it. So last week, my, my parents about a year and a half ago moved into a independent living facility and we had to do some things around the house and now we're getting the house ready to be sold. And so we had to empty the house. My uh, mom and dad lived there for 34 years and um, their children of the depression, they threw away nothing. I'm still, I'm, some of you know what I'm talking about. They threw away nothing. And everything was neat and categorized. They're very neat and logical people. I don't know what happened to me. My brother got all that. I didn't. So it's, it's, it's neat and it's organized. And, and I remember 15 years ago, they'd say, boy, whoever, we feel sorry for you and your brother because when we die or go somewhere else and you have to clean this house out, it's going to be a hard it's going to be hard. It's a lot of work. And I, I wish you get back in time machine and say, do something about it. You know, throw away a box occasionally. So they just, it's just boxes after box after box after box. I mean, three days of nonstop work. I mean, hard. So I say that if you, those of us who are a little older, we're going to be dead one day, get rid of stuff. Do your kids a favor, get rid of stuff. Anyway. So my wife is there working diligently and she's in a corner closet in the basement and uh, all these boxes and just full of stuff. And she, she says, oh, look at this. There's a box full of photographs I've never seen. And she pulls out, she pulls out this photograph. And uh, that's part of it. So this is a photograph taken on February the 2nd, 1944, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. My dad, he's the third guy from the left, good-looking guy on the back, 18 years old. All these guys are 18 and 19. Two months, excuse me, four months before D-Day. So these guys were shipped out to Europe, and uh, some of them did come home. Some of them were part of 380,000 American servicemen who died in World War II. And I just, I saw that and I said, you know, my wife would say, who wants this? Or, and I, I said, that's mine. I looked at my brother and I said, I'm, I'm older than you are and I'm, I'm bigger than you are and I'm uglier than you are and this is not up for discussion. That's mine. So I take this. Let me tell you something. This week, Veterans Day had a different meaning to me as I looked at this photo. My dad. And I just remembered the sacrifice that people made to fight the Nazis in World War II. I remember, our, our, just remember history, our country's history. I remember how God protected my dad. And he met my mom, and they got married when she was 18. He was 23, and they had us, and they loved us, and cared for us, and nurtured us. And I just said, I need to remember. Because it helps me stay the course and it helps me be thankful. Remember the great things the Lord has done and be glad.